So Jesus asked that you would use that passage of Scripture to help us find the good news in it and live out of that good news. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, hello to those of you who are watching online at home. Great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. As you know, last week we did worship through music here. And in traditional services here, we had Noah's uh, Flood production. And over in modern worship, we did the rest of the God's promises throughout Scripture. And both were just fantastic. And I'm so glad I got to be in both of those services. My daughters were part of Noah's Flood here. And my youngest was originally assigned the role of a donkey, which was fine, but she was sort of hoping, in her words, for a cuter animal that she could be. <laughs> in fact, she came home and she's like, oh man, donkey, but I'm the pastor's daughter. Like, as though that should matter, right? Like, I'm back there making the cast assignments. Um, and what she, she we, as we talked to her, what she finally said, we finally got it out of her, what she actually wanted to be was a cat. And so for those of you who remember the cat comment I made a couple of weeks ago, you might be thinking, well, that's God punishing you, Scott. Your daughter didn't get to be the cat. Well, in the end, they switched her. She got to play a camel, which she loved, ended up just loving it and wants to do it again, had a great time. And I wonder if you ever feel that way about the work that you have to do, like my daughter did. On the one hand, maybe not sure that you like the assignment. On the other, loving it. We're doing a sermon series about experiencing the resurrected Easter kind of life every single day of the week, especially in our work. And we all have work to do. Students have school. Parenting is a full-time job. You retired people, we're calling you what's nixters. God still has work for you to do. And the goal of this series is to help us find more joy in our work and get more meaning out of it because we were designed to work. Not only to work, but work is a big part of what God has built into us. And you see that at the very, very beginning of the Bible. God says to Adam and Eve, tend the garden. In other words, he gives them a job title, steward. He gives them a job description, make the garden flourish and extend the joy that is part of the garden all the way around the world. Then he says to them, I give you every seed-bearing plant and every tree that has fruit for food. That was the benefits package. He even gives them an expansion plan. Be fruitful and multiply. Work is built into us. Work is holy. It's how you exercise your gifts in the world. It's a tool God uses to help you grow. It's how we participate with Jesus in the making new of all things. Your job matters to God. And again, students have a job. Retired people, you still have work to do. All of us have work. And some of you just love your jobs. You love the work you have to do. Others, not so much, because all work has both joy and hardships in it. And today I want to talk about how we deal with the difficult things in work. Because you see, like marriage or friendship and everything else, work was created good, work was created holy, but sin creeps in and messes it up. So now sometimes work is frustrating, we end up with cycles of unemployment and underemployment, we sometimes end up with jobs that don't fulfill us. So let me look at the passage that we just read because I think it shows us how sin begins to affect our work. So let me just kind of walk through it to understand how sin creeps in and wrecks work. Context is Adam and Eve have just disobeyed God, rejected him by eating from the tree, the one tree he told them not to eat from. Because they decided that they wanted to be God of their own lives rather than follow him. Which is basically what sin is. It's when we say, I'll do it my way. Usually doesn't work out so well. So God spells out the consequences of their rejection of him. 
It says the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, and they hid from the Lord God. That phrase, walking with God walking in the garden, means more than just God was physically present there. It's a, it's a Hebrew metaphor. To walk with someone was to journey through life with them. It's a metaphor of close friendship. So where once Adam and Eve walked with God, now they run and hide from him. So the first result of sin is that our relationship with God gets wrecked. We don't experience his presence, his power, like we could have otherwise. And the way that affects work is work now gets harder because we don't see God in the middle of it. We don't see what he's doing. We don't realize that it's holy. And so work sometimes starts to seem meaningless or monotonous or routine. Text goes on and says that Adam and Eve realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. So having wrecked their relationship with God, now their, their relationship with themselves is wrecked. They're not okay with themselves. They have insecurities. They have, they have anxieties. They, they feel like they need to, they've got to cover over their flaws. And the way that impacts work is that now, instead of being the way we exercise our gifts in the world, Work becomes the way that we've got to prove ourselves. Work really hard to rack up achievements, to get a sense of self-worth, self-esteem, feel like we matter. Because sort of fig leaves. Work becomes our fig leaf to cover over our flaws. So then God asked them why they did it. And Adam, in the mother of all cop-outs, right, the woman you put here with me, your fault, God, not mine. I'm not taking responsibility for this, man. You put her here, your idea, not mine, right? She gave me some of the fruit, and I ate it. Right, notice how I ate it comes at the end of the sentence, right? I mean, he takes his punishment like a man. He blames his wife, right? Her. It, she's a defective model. Recall her, God. Give me a new one. This, doesn't, this isn't working out so well. So now, because of sin, our relationships with each other get all messed up. God goes on to say to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, what you need to understand is that in Hebrew, the word and and but are the exact same word. So a better translation might be, but he will rule over you. Which shows that any notion that men should boss women around is the result of sin. It's a result of the fall. It's not what God intended. It's not what God wants for us. Did someone just start to clap? <laughs> it's fine if you did. I'm sure it was a woman. Basically what happens here is Adam just throws Eve under the bus, right? Like her fault. Man, God, you know, it's, look at her. I mean, what can, women, what can you do with them, God, right? Anyone ever thrown you under, under the bus at work? Colleague ever done that? Fellow student ever done that to you? Blame Adam. He's the first guy that did it. Because of sin, we, now we, our relationship with each other gets wrecked. We use each other at work to get what we want. Backstab, get cutthroat to get ahead. Sin pushes us apart rather than drawing us together. Woman in our church said that right before Christmas, she and her husband came here to go to a memorial service. And as they're driving up the driveway, they saw some of the signs that are out there that said, Welcome, glad you're here, come on in, glad to have you. Four or five of those signs. Well, then they came in and there were chairs in the lobby set up for the next day's overflow worship service. And they'd been roped off with this big old sign that said, Keep out. <laughs> right? Like, not really the sign you want to see when you walk through the church, right? Keep out. But kind of, what a great metaphor for what sin does to us relationally, right? Glad you're here. Don't touch me. Go away. That just wrecks us relationally. And then finally God says, as a result of sin, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So now even our relationship with nature gets messed up. 
We no longer work in harmony with it. Thorns and thistles spring up in our work. Now notice, work is not a result of the fall. Work is not a result of sin or a punishment for it. But that work got hard. That there are thorns and thistles in our work. That's the result of the fall. So for all those reasons, sin gets in and messes up work, which was created to be good, something that was good for us. So it's all summed up, I think, very well in an old country song that some of you will remember from years ago. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. My woman done left and took all the reasons I've been working for. Better not try to stand in my way when I walk out that door. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Poetry. Sheer, like just beautiful, deep, meaningful, profound. I used to teach literature. I know when it's good. That's really amazing, amazing poetry. Sung, ironically enough, by a guy named Johnny Paycheck. So go figure. So if that's the problem, what's the solution? How do we get out of some of these thorns and thistles that invade our work? Again, whether we're students, retired, in volunteer work, whatever it is. Five things briefly to deal with thorns and thistles. Pick the one you like best. First, Jesus. Okay, you're in a church. You could have seen that one coming, right? But he is our most important remedy that we've got. When Adam hides from God, the text says, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? But the Lord God called to the man. That is the Bible in a nutshell. Whole story of the Bible. We run away from God. God pursues us, finally coming himself in the person of Jesus. And you see that a little bit later when it says, God says to the serpent, serpent who deceived Adam and Eve, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's a prophecy of Jesus. And it's interesting that the text talks about the offspring of the woman because back in that day, the offspring was always traced through the father. Well, there's a reason for that. It's because there's only one offspring, only one person in all of history who was ever the offspring of just a woman, solely a woman, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the one who crushes the devil by defeating sin and death on the cross. And Jesus is the solution because only Jesus addresses the real problem that we have, which is sin. And unless you identify the problem correctly, you cannot come up with the right solution. Someone sent me a picture not too long ago from the 60s of how one company tried to deal with some of the problems in their office. You know how a lot of offices have soda or coffee dispensers to kind of keep their, their workers awake? Well, this office had a different kind of dispenser. Ice cold whiskey. In their office. Okay, you know, like, what did that company think was the problem that whiskey was going to be the answer? Some of you are like, Pastor, whiskey is always the answer. <laughs> like, it's just a bizarre thing, right? If, unless, you get the, unless you get the problem right, you're not going to get the solution right. And over the centuries, there have been a lot of answers to the question of what's wrong with us. Plato, back in the Greek times, Plato said that our problem is that the soul is good, but the body is bad. That's not in the Bible anywhere. Right? And some of that even crept into Christianity, but it's not in the Bible. The Bible says the opposite. The body is good. Plato's philosophy was a disaster. Led to suspicion of pleasure, fears that sex was bad. All stuff that's not in the Bible. That was Plato. Rousseau, Marx, and Freud, they all said our problem in one way or another is that society messes us up. Fascism says the problem is those people out there. They're the enemy. Got to be dealt with. But how you identify the problem will lead directly to your solution. So if the problem is the body, then the Savior is legalism. Just suppress pleasure. 
If the problem is society, then the Savior is an all-powerful state to socially engineer us correctly. If the problem is those people out there, well then the Savior is war and conquest to deal with it. But if the problem is sin in here, then the only Savior is Jesus, who on the cross pays the price we know needs to be paid for our sin in order for the universe to be just, and who then fills us with His Holy Spirit, who helps us see our own sin and gives us power to be transformed. To deal with thorns and thistles, we need Jesus. Second, find joy in the work itself. Whatever that work is, there's some kind of joy in it. No matter how hard or boring or difficult, there's always some kind of joy in the work itself that you can find. The Bible says work hard and cheerfully in all you do, just as though you were working for the Lord and not merely for your masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Work cheerfully. See, all work involves four things that are sacred to God, time, money, people, and the fruit of the land. And how we handle those four things can bring joy and meaning in just about any job. There's an old story, many of you have heard, of, heard about it, of, of two people that were working on a cathedral back in the Middle Ages. Someone asked them, what are you doing? One guy just said, ugh, I'm cutting stones. The other guy looked up and said, I'm building a cathedral. See, the attitude we bring into any job can bring, me, bring back more joy out of it, depending on the attitude we bring. I've told you in the past that my first job in high school was as a dishwasher at a restaurant called Farrell's. Right when I turned 16, got this job washing dishes, and I hated it. And I've told you about that in the past. I've never told you how I actually learned to like that job, washing dishes. Back then, we called it the dish pit. It was hot, smelled horrible, which meant I always smelled horrible. Girls never dated dish pitters. They always dated the waiters, right? So I told the manager that I should be a waiter. And instead of answering me, the manager told me this story about some monk who washed dishes in some monastery who always said, I have no right to be anything but a dishwasher until I'm the best dishwasher ever. And he's, he's telling me this story. I'm thinking, thanks, Yoda. You know, like, <laughs> happy now on shall I be? You know? Like, so I argued with him for weeks and weeks. But then I started to think about what he said, and I started to have fun in the dish pit. So I like to time myself to see how fast I could load and unload the dishwasher. And the other dish pitters and I would crack jokes as we worked to make it more fun. And, and then this, this is a little weird, but I love to see how badly I could smell by the end of a shift. <laughs> there was something about that. It just kind of made me feel like I'd worked really hard and I, I took pride in my smell. And, and that's how I sort of found joy in that job until eventually I was promoted to be a dishwasher or a, a waiter. In any job, there is something that you can find fun in if you just kind of have the right attitude. 20th century philosopher, Mary Poppins, put it rather profoundly, I think, when she said, in every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Find the fun and snap the jobs again. And now that song is stuck in your head for the rest of the day. <laughs> to deal with thorns and thistles, we need Jesus. Find joy in the work that we do, whatever it is. Third, rest, a.k.a. Sabbath. As I said above, sin wrecks our sense of self-worth, which means now we turn to work to prove ourselves worthy through our achievements and our accomplishments. And now instead of enjoying work, we get caught up in frantic striving. We start to compare ourselves to others. You know, not here on the east side, but in other communities. People compare themselves to other people, and they got a better job, and they make more money, and all of that. That's the thorns and thistles. 
But in Genesis, it says God works for six days, but on the seventh day, he rests. In the Ten Commandments, God commands, six days shall you work, one day shall you rest. It's called Sabbath. Time off to connect with God and other people. Number four on God's top ten list. And while we would never brag about breaking the other nine, right, we'll brag about breaking the fourth commandment. We won't brag about the other nine. Someone asks you how you're doing, you're not going to say, oh, just bowing down to some graven images and proud of it. Right? But if someone asks you how you're doing, you might just say, oh, I am so busy. And we say it half complaining and half bragging. Look how much I must matter. But in the book of Hebrews, it says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also enters rest from their works, just as God did from him, his. Now that's referring to God at creation where he rests at the end, but more importantly to the cross, where Jesus said it is finished, where Jesus did the most important work of all, died to cancel our sins. See, when I overwork long hours, really what I'm trying to do is earn redemption in a way. Prove to myself and others that I am worthwhile, that I matter through my achievements. But Jesus says, you're valuable not because you work a lot, but because I paid a high price for you. And when we rest in that, we can rest from all our anxious striving to prove ourselves. See, the question Sabbath asks is, do you trust? Do you trust that God's work is sufficient to get you where He wants you to be? Maybe not where you want to be, but where he wants you to be. That's why God himself rests. Not because he's tired, but because his work is complete. It's sufficient. God himself doesn't show up in the office every day. Why do you think you have to? Sabbath means trusting God that if we take time off, one of two things is going to happen. Either God will see to it that we complete the project or please the boss or whatever it is. Or if that doesn't happen... We can assume that the project or pleasing the boss or whatever was never mission critical to getting us to where God wants us to be in the first place. Now, that may mean we don't rise up the corporate ladder as far or as fast as other people, but if we stick with Jesus, our lives will be filled with the things that every happiness study ever done shows gives really lasting joy. Connection with God, connection with others, meaning and purpose in life. Stick with Jesus and we'll have those things not in spite of taking time off, but because we took time off. Jesus, find joy in any work. Sabbath, fourth, we need community. Find other Christians in your workplace or in this church to share your work burdens with. Ask for prayer. Swap ideas how to overcome the thorns and thistles. We've started to put together vocational small groups in places like Microsoft. You might want to do that in your industry. Or another thing you could do is to sign up for Cascade Fellows. Nine-month program here, great program that we're going to do here where men and women who are working professionals are going to meet weekly with people from, leaders from this church, uh, leaders out there in the marketplace for community, mentoring and discovering how we can bring the gospel into our work and make work more meaningful and joyful. Have a program for younger professionals as well as for those over 35. Um, the deadline to apply is coming up and will be, be an information meeting after this service over there in the welcome room. I encourage you to explore that. Jesus, find joy in any work, Sabbath rest, community, finally, to deal with thorns and thistles, recognize that even though they are there, there is always a harvest in any job, so look for it. Let's look at that verse from Genesis again, where God says the ground will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you, or but you, will eat the plants of the field. Notice that even though there are thorns and thistles there, there's also a harvest. There's still food, good things. 
Jesus told a parable where a farmer sows wheat in a field. The devil comes along and sows weeds. The farmer let the weeds and the wheat grow together. At the end, harvested the wheat and then burned off the weeds. Eventually, Jesus will come and burn off all the weeds, all those thorns and thistles. But until then, there is still joy, there is still a harvest, there are still good things even amidst the weeds. And along the way, we get glimpses of God's harvest, moments of the Easter resurrected kind of life breaking through. As the Christmas hymn says, No more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. And our job is to look for that harvest and be agents in the making new of all things, right where we are. So for instance, some of you are gifted to help people get through problems. That yields a harvest of people encouraged by how you've listened, how you've helped them in your neighborhood, in your office, in your school, wherever you are. Some of you are musicians and artists who bring a harvest of beauty in an often ugly world. Some of you are mechanics who repair what gets broken, which certainly helps people. But more than that, that is the work of redemption. That is the work of making all things new as a mechanic. In every job, there are thorns and thistles. In every job, there is joy and a harvest. Over the years that I've been here, I've had uh, three different administrative assistants, and they've all been wonderful and helped, helped me amazingly in spite of the fact that I think I'm pretty hard to work with. In fact, the very first time I met the staff here, right after I'd arrived, like first day on the job, they were all introducing themselves to me one by one, and I'd say, hi, great to meet you, all of that. But when it got to the person who was going to be my administrative assistant, she said, hello, my name is Jackie, and the first thing I said was, I'm so sorry. Just in advance. I'm sorry for all of it in advance. I'm sure she found that very encouraging, right? This is going to be awesome. And every assistant I've had has been wonderful. The one who works with me now, she has this gift of bringing order out of the chaos that is moi and my, my life. I'm the thorns and thistles. She brings out the harvest. In every job, there's a harvest. Pastor Tim Keller tells the story of a man who owned a car dealership. And like in a lot of dealerships, salespeople were, re were rewarded basically for out-negotiating high-paying customers. Result is a lot of stress around buying cars, all the haggling, all of that stuff. Well, this man was a Christian, and he was praying over his job, and he began to notice that women and certain minorities who were not culturally used to negotiating ended up paying way more for their cars, on average, than people who had jobs that involved negotiation. Figured that wasn't very fair. So he created a new policy where there was just a flat fee for every car. He'd show people how much he paid for it, how much he needed to make a profit, and then that was it, no haggling. Salespeople were then rewarded for things like customer service, customer loyalty, customer satisfaction, that sort of thing. Result was, he got rid of some of the thorns and thistles, both for the person buying the car, who had to endure all the haggling, but also for the salespeople, who basically were being pressured to use people to make a living. And now they could just help people, which made their job feel better. Result was, fewer thorns and thistles, more harvest. More Sabbath rest from the stress and anxiety. More joy in the job because he listened to Jesus. So what are the thorns and thistles in your work, whatever it is? Here's the homework for this week. In the bulletin, there's a blank piece of paper. I want you to take it home, and this week, on one side of it, write down the thorns and thistles, the things that are hard in your job. Write it down and then pray for those things every day. Pray over them that God would help redeem them, make them better, all of that. And then on the reverse side, write down the joys you encounter in your job. And pray over those every day this week and 
thank God for those joys every week. Keep that list on your refrigerator so that every day you're praying for both the thorns and thistles and for the joys that you have in your work. And along the way, ask Jesus to show you the harvest that is in your work. Take a Sabbath day of rest. This week, decide, I'm going to take a Sabbath day of rest to connect with God and others and refresh myself. Maybe find a few people who can encourage you and support you. Maybe sign up for Cascade Fellows. Because here's the thing. There's not one square inch of space, not one minute of time over which Jesus does not look and declare, this is mine. And just as God came to Adam and Eve and said, where are you? God is still on the move in the person of Jesus, and he comes to make his blessings known, pull up those thorns and thistles, and bring a harvest of rest and joy and all things made new through his power working in you and me all over King County. As far as that curse is found, Jesus comes to make his blessings known. So Jesus, we ask that you would help us be a part of that. In the thorns and thistles of our work, help us to see the harvest. Help us to see the joy. And then, Lord, give us the power to participate with you in making all things new. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, as we've been doing this sermon series on faith and work, I wanted you to be able to hear from not just a pastor, but from a real person. So I've asked Craig Thorpe to share a story about his calling from God into a, uh, his vocational calling from God, and it's kind of the reverse of a vocational call story that you normally hear in church. Craig. Thank you, Scott. Good morning. Well, as a kid, I was interested in art, trains, and architecture. I studied design in college, and then after a short stint in the Army, worked for architects and landscape architects. Jesus became real to me during my college years, and I started hanging out around church and parachurch groups wanting to live a faith-filled life. But you know, I quickly got the message that this ministry thing was the apex of what it meant to serve God in the world. So slowly, I turned away from art, transportation, and architecture. I went to seminary, got ordained, and got a call to Seattle First Presbyterian Church. So I landed here with a new calling on my life, and I was ready to rock and roll. Well, three years later, God had the audacity to upend my plans. One evening, a bunch of us from church were out having coffee, and one gentleman who was a retired pastor told us that God had made it very clear to him he was to work outside of the church in the so-called secular realm. The moment he said that, I heard God say to me, not with my ears, but in here, the same thing is going to happen to you. My immediate faith-filled response was, like hell it is. <laughs> and I don't remember another thing from the rest of that evening. Well, two years later, I left Seattle First Presbyterian and took a temporary job to start Sammamish Presbyterian. When that job ended, though, my troubles really began. Trying my best to ignore God's personal word to me, I kept searching out church positions all around the country. After all, that was the highest calling, right? And countless times I ended up as the second to the last candidate and he always chose the other guy. It was maddening. Then I developed my plan. I would work within the presbytery and use my art to serve churches. 
So I set out on a task of finding a market for my graphic skills. Mm -mm. Financial disaster. So once again, God said to me, look, Craig, you started a church, you can certainly start your own business. That was the last thing I wanted to hear, but with a wife and three kids, I had to do something, so I started back into architectural art. Well, in not too, time, not too distant time after that, it expanded into a lot more railroad work and maritime work, and my art became known nationally. So I'm back to art, transportation, and architecture. Took me a while to get it, but I realized that my calling as an artist is to help my clients visualize and communicate their ideas and new projects. And I use art to show alternatives for the way we move our stuff and ourselves around the world. Alternatives that portray lasting values and stewardship of resources. And why? Well, because art and beauty are God's ideas. And he has us use them to show just how much he cares for our culture. So for 20 years plus, I have participated as an artist in this culture-making project that reflects God's kingdom of bringing the up there down here. Thank you.